I believe that entrepreneurialism is essentially a belief system. You must believe in something that is bigger than yourself, something that is bigger than the business you are attempting to address, something that is bigger than the VCs, bigger than everything. You must have a belief in something absolutely enormous that you can do for this planet or for this universe or for these multiverses. You must have a belief in something, an unwavering belief that there's something you can do that nobody else can do. And if you do it, the world will be a better place. Welcome back to the Inspired Execution Podcast. Each episode shares the experience and learnings of a world-class leader on their journey to success. The guests on this podcast are bold, brilliant, and not afraid to change. As you navigate your own path, we hope you feel inspired by their stories, lessons learned, and the vision of the future. This week, we're joined by Martin Mikos, CEO of HackerOne, who is empowering the world to build a safer internet. From his humble beginnings in Finland, Martin has made his mark in Silicon Valley with headlines in Forbes, Fortune, TechCrunch, and so much more. We talk about building a startup from the garage up to selling his company for over a billion dollars. But before we get to Martin, I think it'll be helpful to get a little Hacker 101. Check this out. The new way of doing security is not to do it in a closed room in secrecy, but be transparent and open, using the world's friendly community of hackers in helping you secure your business. I don't believe we're capable of building systems that have no bugs, whether those are functional issues or security vulnerabilities or performance problems. We've all had them. And there's never enough people on, on the security teams to get a complete understanding of the entire system and making sure that things are safe. For that, I believe we need hackers to work with us to point out the problems that we missed. The HackerOne platform enables people to share. You can go in, you can read other researchers' reports and see how hackers have attacked other companies. And then from a hacker's perspective, I can go out and read all of these other security reports and then go try those hacks against other assets. We have an ultimate goal of um, making the internet a safer place, making the world a better place. And just accepting the fact that more people, more eyes will always have a better perspective than just the, the, the four eyes that we have is, is kind of the foundation of why we believe hacker-powered security is where this entire industry is going. Now let's meet our man of the hour, Martin Mikos. Thanks so much for being with us, Martin. Welcome. Thank you, Chet. I'm happy to be here with you. So you were born and raised in Finland and graduated university with a degree in technical physics. What is technical physics? That is a good question. If I really knew what technical physics were, I might have graduated quicker. <laughs> I'm very proud of my degree, but I picked technical physics because it was the most difficult department to get into when I graduated. So I thought, okay, I'll go for the most difficult one. And I quickly learned you shouldn't have me design nuclear power plants or anything like that. <laughs> but it is life-transforming when you have to learn Schrodinger's equation and really hard mathematical concepts and physical concepts. And I think I learned problem-solving and some even sort of philosophy through having to try to learn stuff that I actually wasn't smart enough to learn. So I didn't graduate with any wonderful diploma. I, I did graduate, but I didn't stand out as the bright student in that class. But I got to hang out with really intelligent people. 
and learn how to work with those who have IQ more than most. Like it's a particular group. They are wonderful to deal with. They have a humor that's just amazing. So that's why I, I loved my time at the Department of Technical Physics, but I can't say I'm really an expert on it. What is the one or two things you took away from the technical physics thing that has actually helped you with your journey? Well, I often think about when we had really difficult mathematical or physical problems, they always said, change the coordinate system, change the framework and solve it here and then bring it back. And I think it's true for everything in life that if you can't find the answer to a problem, it's because you have to look at it from another perspective and then the answer is obvious. But to me, that problem-solving facility is really, I, I think I've applied it in nearly everything in life. It seems like a lot of us that have gone through technical degrees, and certainly not technical physics for me, the isolating of the variables or changing the framework is something that we deploy in every part, whether we are doing a technical job or it is running a company or everything else. I agree. Yes, I do think so. That, that's what's so beautiful with it, that it ref reflects reality. Never perfectly, but then physics is never perfect anyhow. So philosophy with technical physics? Yeah, like I use philosophy as a the true layperson, but I, I like to think contextually about things, understand concepts. And in that way, I am interested in philosophy. And, and I'm very proud that when I was like maybe 12 years old, I found a book at home by Bertrand Russell, Introduction to Mathematical Philosophy. And I read it. <laughs> I probably didn't understand more than the tenth of what he was saying, but I was intrigued by it. It was my grandfather's book that I read. So, so I have a sort of a fondness for it. So you moved from Finland to the Bay Area in 2003. What's the one major difference in war culture between Finland and the U.S. that you didn't expect? Yeah, great question. And I'll start by saying what I did expect. I did expect to come here and everything is bigger. And yes, everything is bigger. Like it's really difficult to find something that's not bigger. There's a sense of urgency here that we don't have in the old world. Like in the old world, we use sparingly of all resources, but time we use a lot of. And here it's the opposite. And I, I was thinking this is a place where individuals can blossom and there's a belief in individuals. And, and that was also true. So I was correct on many, many aspects. What I didn't know was I was sort of thinking that when Americans say good for you, they don't really mean it. It's just a platitude. That's wrong. Like, it's wonderful to see that when they say good for you, they actually mean it completely. And people in Silicon Valley truly wish the best for the people around them. And to me, that's very, very inspiring and energizing and, and wonderful. And I didn't know that when I arrived. I had a sense of that. I moved here when I was very young in 85. And because my path was trying to come and work for Steve Jobs. And so that was a big part of it. So I always had this, you know, you need to change the world. And a lot of people forget that a lot of people in the, in the Valley actually mean it. They actually do want to figure out change the world. Now, now it's changing a bit, right? It has become all about money and this and that. It's not all about money, but it's changing. The one thing I found, and I would love to get your perspective, is I found humor to be something I had to get adjusted to, right? I would laugh at different jokes and I would crack different jokes for a different audience. And here, 
Humor is such a big part of connecting with people, but it was not the easiest thing to sync up on. Did you find that to be the case? Yes, you're so right. It's a huge difference. And somehow I think it's connected. Like the fact that there's no cynicism in Silicon Valley is what's so wonderful with it. But it means that 90% of all humor is dead because there's a lot of humor that's satirical, cynical, dark, black, weird, backwards. Like a lot of this humor that sort of, that doesn't follow any rules of logic and, and it doesn't work here in Silicon Valley. You have to take it out and then every now and then when you meet with somebody from another place, then you can tell those jokes and everybody's yeah. laughing. But yeah. you're right, that's a big difference. Let's talk about MySQL. You took a tiny startup. It was a billion dollar acquisition. I can talk about MySQL because I was on the sidelines watching you and how you took on a massive, massive large company, right, in making that happen. What was your biggest challenge in scaling the business? It was wonderful because we're the first expression of the modern digital world, truly. Like, the first big success in open source software, the first example of community building and and developer first and all of those. So we didn't even know it would become a thing because nobody had done it before. But those things actually mushroomed on their own. What was difficult back then was to figure out the business model for something called open source because open source isn't a business model. It's a production model, maybe a distribution model. So early on, we we had this insight that we need to become masters of how to make money on open source. And it was a very divisive topic then. Like some people would hate us because we're too commercial and others would praise us because we finally figured out how to make money. And wherever you, you went, people were emotional and engaged about it. And then we realized, okay, when you get people engaged emotionally, you're onto something. Yes. Good or so, bad. <laughs> good or bad. Yeah. And we learned that when you build a community, if nobody's against you, you're not really popular. So then we came up with this principle for the business model where we said that some people will spend any amount of time in order to save money, and other people will save, spend money in order to save time. And that guided us in our business model, that we allowed some people to use the product completely free because they were ready to do so, and they spent a lot of time, and the others spent money to get more convenience. And for, from them, we then charge as much money as we could could be the same person at different stages of their career. It could be people in the same company. Like we didn't try to keep them separate. We just knew that some would never give us money and some would never give us much time. So we take money instead. Now that entire concept is called PLG. And then the concept was not known, right? Which is, hey, just come and use our stuff. If you find it useful, you'll pay us, right? And, you know, and there's not a single company that's getting funded in the Valley that it does not have a PLG motion, that's right? True. The product-led growth thing. Yeah. So I mean, you guys were the pioneers. It's, it's not been written that way, but you guys were the pioneers of product-led growth, right? Yeah, yeah. It, 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 now, in retrospect, it is true. Like we had this 50-minute rule. We said, in 15 minutes, you should be able to download, install, and get going with MySQL. 50 minutes at that time was super fast. Like doing it with Oracle took three weeks. So when we did it in 15 minutes, people didn't believe us. Now, of course, it's a question of 10 seconds and you spin up a VM or a container somewhere in the cloud. But back then, it was amazing. And, and we had other rules like that. One was that whenever somebody sent in a question about our product, 
we would immediately update the reference manual and respond back and say, it's in the manual yeah, and with a link to the place. So yeah. the reference manual evolved very fast because it evolved in re uh, response to the true questions. And we published it for free online, which also was unheard of back then. Back then, companies sold their reference manuals for money and we decided to give it away. So we did those things like they were great innovations. We didn't call them product-led growth or anything. We just did it. There were many great things that happened with MySQL, right? And you're absolutely right. It was the, the biggest open source company. There's only one other company that has achieved as much as MySQL did, and it's probably Red Hat from an open source perspective. They've done well. But the one thing that you did phenomenally well that does not get written up as well is distributed, right? You were a very distributed company. And at that point, it was not the most popular thing for people. Everybody was creating offices and campuses and things like that. And you just basically followed, if I may, followed your, hey, we're a bunch of open source folks. We build software this way. We're going to run the company this way. Is that fair? Yes, except that we were not a bunch of open source folks. I was not an open source person when I joined. Most of us were just people. We didn't have accolades and credit in the open source world when we started. A few of us had, but many just joined it. But we did have this view that the world is getting global and everybody should be able, allowed to be where they are and work together digitally. And we did it. There was no Slack, so we used IRC. Uh, we used email. There was no Zoom. So what did we do? We had these conference calls where we would dial in to a telephone number to listen to a conversation. And then we used IRC as the back channel for chatting and submitting questions. And it worked well. Like today, you think you have to have Slack and Zoom and stuff to, to make it work. No, no, you could. It was possible 20 years ago. People have been collaborating for many hundreds of years in different ways, right? And every time we make a step forward, I also think we actually take a small step back because then it becomes too much. And then we correct ourselves along the way. Exactly. And my point was on distributed organizations, by the way, that it's a new construct that we have work time and free time and we have home and workplace. That came with the Industrial Revolution. Before that, everybody worked at home. Everybody mixed work time with leisure time all the time. You, if you're a fisherman, you fish until you get fish. And when you have fish, you stop fishing. Like, it's not like you are fishing eight to four every day. No, you do it when it makes sense. And if you don't have to do it, then you celebrate and you take it easy and you have your work-life balance. So it's a more natural concept to work from home and be more flexible and malleable with these things than to think that work is some sort of a like a container you go into and come out of. It's really interesting for me, Datastacks, when I joined, 85% of our folks were actually in a distributed place all over the world. This is the first time I've had such a high percentage of folks actually not in the office that I go to, right? Not being able to see the engineers and talk to them and things like that, right? About some ideas, things like that. It was an adjustment and I got adjusted very quickly. The, my first day, they said, don't call us remote, call us distributed. Exactly. For me, that was the turning moment. And I was like, wow, okay, we're going to be distributed from now on out. And it made all the difference when you change that mindset. Yeah, we always said it at MySQL. I said, you can't call anything remote because everybody is central to themselves. Like if somebody's remote, it's just a relative statement. We even stopped saying spring and fall because we realized that on the Southern Hemisphere, it's the opposite. So you realize, okay, those are words you shouldn't use. So you have to look for 
the commonalities and the words that are not self-centric or judging in any way. They're just there. And then you can create an inclusive, collaborative group where everybody participates on an equal footing. And that's exactly why we at DataSacks think it's tequila time any time of the day. <laughs> okay, let's go. <laughs> it works because it's, because it's at least six o'clock somewhere in the world, right? So <laughs> Yeah, that's wonderful. We, we just, at HackerOne, our leadership team now spans like eight hours of time zones. So when we have our happy hour, we had to think hard of at what time on Friday we should do a happy hour so that everybody can participate. So let's talk about HackerOne. The, the mission is to create a safer internet. Given everything that's going on in the world, what is your view on privacy? Well, I think that in an even broader context, we human beings are building a new civilization now. And, and we don't necessarily know it or agree to it, or we are not even aware, but we are creating a completely new civilization, which is digital in nature. And as we create a civilization in the digital world, we have to rethink everything that's essential to life. Privacy, secrecy, authenticity, truth, democracy, all these things that we agree that they are all important topics, but they actually, you carry them out or make them work, they manifest themselves in a different way in the digital world. And, and we are ignoring that dis distinction and thinking that the laws and rules and practices from the physical world can be just sort of somehow translated into the digital and it would work. It doesn't. So at HackerOne, we, we focus on software that's broken and we make sure it's not broken anymore, that it, it's safe and secure. Privacy is outside of our realm of work, but of course we support privacy by making sure that software doesn't become the leaking bucket or the place where privacy would be violated. But privacy is by itself a tricky thing because in the olden days when we all lived in small villages, we had no privacy. Everybody could see and hear everything we did. But the village was small. And now we have a large world where there are cameras and sensors. So again, nothing is secret. But now it's not just our friends in the village who can see it, but it's anybody on any distance. And there could be people who don't care about you, people who don't know you. And it presents different challenges when, like, government who dislikes you can use it against you far, far away. And that was not possible when, in a small village, everybody could hear what you did at home. So I think we have new challenges there that we just haven't figured out to, how to solve. But there is an answer. We should just ask the young people. Like They will know. They grew up with this. They, they, they have a natural instinct of how to protect themselves and others and keep everybody safe and keep it open. They may not be able to undertake the change on their own, but they have a sense for what's needed. We should listen to them. I would agree. All the folks, I call them born on the web, right, folks? These people that just grew up, like my youngest daughter actually grew up writing with a finger on an iPad before she actually took a pen and put it on a piece of paper. And everybody was like, she's not going to write well. She <laughs> writes great. She's 14 and she's yeah. doing really well. But as much as they actually get sucked into the vortex, if I can call it a vortex, right? They actually have self-correcting mechanisms. So they have not lost them all. They are not becoming just, they actually do a very good job of merging the physical and the digital world. 
right? And sometimes they go overboard because they're young minds, but they actually have a self-correcting mechanism that comes into play by themselves. Is that something that you agree with? Completely. And we all go overboard. And everybody who is who succeeded in life made a lot of stupid mistakes when they were young. So the fact that the young make mistakes is not a problem. But I agree with you. They sort of have a sensibility for it. Like when they develop the communication mechanisms, emojis and GIFs and all these things, and you wonder, what are they needed for? But they are needed because they convey things that, that the written language is not equipped to do. And we want the digital experience to be as rich as the, the in-person experience, and it will be. Maybe it's not yet there, but it's getting there. I love that we started this, which is we're building a civilization, right? A digital civilization. We just need to acknowledge it, right? And everything is going to be the, the way we behave each other, the way we think about ourselves, how everything happens, right? The way we live, everything is going to change a lot over the next 20, 30 years. Yeah, and we must set the rules for it. Like there's an old Viking saying, uh, meaning you build your land, your nation with law. You set laws to create a, a nation or a society or a civilization. And it's true. People say we mustn't pass too many laws about the digital world. We should. We should set the rules because we have a rules-based society and we believe in the rule of law. And we should agree on the rules of the game on that side. And they, they will be, in some areas, widely different from the physical world. And we should just accept it. That's a beautiful way of uh, thinking about it. So you're a CEO, a board member, obviously you've done open source infrastructure software. As you reflect back, what has been your defining moment? If, if you can find one. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I think the Big Bang was defining for all of us. <laughs> like that, that had the big, biggest impact on our lives. To me, it's sort of a, a string of many things that define me and like you realize only much later how defining it, it is and was. I, I did have at MySQL a, a really terrible moment when I thought everything was over. So it was very defining in that sense. In 2005... I made a strategic mistake and I sort of put the whole business at risk. And I, I thought my career was over. Like I was like, okay, this is it. I, I thought I was a good CEO. I am not. I'm a loser. I should just sit here and look at my watch and see how many minutes it takes before they fire me. Like that, that's how I felt. But my executive team sort of saved me. They said, Martin, you're right. You did cause this. You did screw up, but you are our leader and now you put yourself together and take us out of this as well. Like you can't just cause the problem, you must also solve the problem. And I was like, I was nearly crying and I realized, yeah, they are right. So we came out of it and it became a defining moment for the power of the team, I would say, because they lifted me up. It wasn't me, it was them. Pardon, it's really interesting, right? Whenever somebody asks a question like that of me, or as I've asked the question of others, they always go back to a moment that was very hard, not when they were celebrating, right? It, because that becomes far more defining. The struggle is far more defining than the, I am celebrating in the streets because I won the World Series, right? It's really interesting how our minds go to the suffering piece that actually helps us. It's true. It's a reminder how much we learn through pain. Yes. 
And we always say that we should make learning experiences very enjoyable and happy because then we learn better. It's true. Compared to sort of boring, we learn much better when it's fun. Unfortunately, we learn even faster when we burn our fingers. And I, I don't know how to reconcile it because I don't want to cause pain and suffering for people, but I realize that some parts of life happen only through pain and suffering. And if you have no pain and suffering, you are not evolving as a human being. I would agree with you 100%. I have a saying that I live by, which is, through suffering comes happiness. I find myself always explaining it to people because they always think suffering has to be on the streets and you're starving. No, it doesn't. Suffering just has to be what you put yourself through. And you learn through that process. And my perspective is always, we've not suffered enough yet, right? Because we have to, you have to actually go through that process before. I'm sure at MySQL, at MySQL, at sure, sure at HackerOne, there's a lot you have to go through before you earn the respect. I mean, everybody looks at... Tesla is a great company. Apple was a great company. And right. they don't know all the shit that everybody had to go through to get there. Exactly. But then the, the question is, in our actions, we try to avoid suffering. But once we succeed, we always say it couldn't have happened without the suffering. So why are we then avoiding suffering? Like There's something there that we haven't figured out. Because I also don't think you should head for suffering. If you intentionally do it, then you won't be successful. So somehow you must try to avoid it, but when it happens, you must also know it's essential. Absolutely. Embrace it somehow and not run away from it. So you have a leadership blog where you write about a ton of awesome topics, right? DNI, leading distributed teams, and what it takes to be a great entrepreneur or CEO. What piece of advice would you give to aspiring leaders? I think leadership is a wonderful topic because, first of all, whenever anything goes wrong in business, it's always a leadership problem, always. So, so if somebody wants to be successful, all they have to do is improve their leadership. So it's a pretty obvious answer to a lot of things. And people don't spend enough time and pay enough attention to it. Then when it comes to leadership, I believe it is about taking a little bit more responsibility than you were given or that you were expected to take. So just do one more little extra thing. And that's it. When you are on to that, then you will keep doing it. And I use a very mundane example. You go to you know, a hotel or somewhere, you go to the restroom, and there are paper towels to dry your hands on. There are lots of them on the floor, always. Okay, some people will pick up the paper towels of other people and throw them away. Like they take a responsibility that isn't theirs. It's a little bit dangerous because who knows whether it's clean or not. But you can do, you can do it with your own paper towel. But if you do that, you are strengthening yourself and saying, I can do this. I have the power to do it. I can take responsibility. I can leave this place in a better shape than it was I can contribute more than I take out. And it doesn't matter whether the restroom is then cleaner or not. What matters is that your mind is more, you empower yourself when you take that responsibility because you start feeling so good about what you're doing. And this was just an example. You can apply it in your everyday work at your workplace in thinking like, how do I step up to something that they didn't asked me to do. They didn't think I would do. They didn't think I was capable of doing, but I'll do it anyhow. And I sort of do it selflessly. It's not like I immediately need more stock options or salary or a bonus. I, I just do it because it's good for me. 
that's the thing that the person who picks up those extra paper towels in the restroom, it's that person who gets better, not the restroom. Maybe that's a little bit too sort of vague, but to me, leadership starts there. And then everything else you can read in a leadership book, like everything else they tell you how to improve your communication, be open, authentic, lead yourself, lead others, deliver results, strive for excellence, teamwork. There's a bunch of wonderful topics there, but it starts from this realization that you are picking up that paper towel, not for the sake of others, but for the sake of yourself. Yeah, I think that's a tremendous insight. I have this concept and and I'm going to incorporate this. I always say really good leaders do X plus Y. You ask them to X, but they always come back with a Y. And some people come back with a Z, X, Y, and Z. Yes. And, but, but I think your insight is they shouldn't come back because you expect an X and a Y and a Z. They should come back because they wanted to deliver an X, Y, and a Z for themselves, not for what you were expecting. And I think that's, that's beautiful. Linus Torvalds once said, it's sort of a little bit tangential, but maybe it's exactly the same. He said, a good bug fixes not just one problem, but at least two. Yes. Like when you make software and you f- change something, it's not enough that you just fix the issue you had at hand. It, you have to achieve something else as well. And then it's worth the while. No, absolutely. Now I'm going to ask you a few questions. These are rapid fire questions. And I want you to say the first thing that comes to your mind. Let's go. What's your most favorite prize possession? Yeah, possession is a difficult word, but I think it is my my address book where I write down when I meet people where I met them. It brings me so much joy to go back and realize that I had lunch with Chet Kapoor in 2004 at Restaurant 7 in San Jose. That sort of is my possession. That I didn't lose that little piece of information over 18 years. That is so unique. That is awesome. <laughs> no wonder when we started this, you were like, I'll tell you the name of the restaurant. I'm like, really? That's <laughs> yeah. awesome. <laughs> yes. That is, uh, that's great. What's your favorite meal? Rye bread. Finnish rye bread. Nothing beats it. Favorite place to hike? Oh, anywhere. I live in San Francisco. We go a lot over to behind Oakland. There's the Reinhardt Park or something, which is wonderful. Redwoods and paths that go up and down or flat. I love that area and large, not easy to find parking. But you could hike anywhere. I, I go out hiking in the city here in the industrial area of San Francisco, and I think it's very cool. I think I would agree with that. What book has changed your life? We'll go back to technical physics. When I studied there, somebody said, Martin, you need to read GED. I'm like, what's that? Uh, Gödel Escher Bach, An Eternal Golden Braid. And it's this guy, super smart mathematician, who writes this funny philosophical mathematical book that's nearly impossible for anybody to understand. But the tidbits you understand make you just full of joy. That's awesome. Who is the most inspiring person you've met? Okay, so he's so inspiring that I haven't met him. (laughs) (laughs) Or you'd like to meet. (laughs) I think Nelson Mandela was the most amazing person. And I've never met him, but I can easily fantasize about having met him. So I think that's good enough. But like somebody who rises above all the suffering in such a way and goes against all the odds, changes everything and like starts his life as an 
villain and very like violent guy and probably bad guy and did a lot of mistakes and terrible things I'm sure in his youth and then he comes out so like stepping out on top of all of that and becoming a uniting factor in a place that didn't feel any union I think that's just like that is true community building Martin this has been awesome Thank you. Thank you so much for doing this. I'm looking forward to getting some finished rye bread with you in San Francisco now. We will have it, Chet. Chet, I'm looking <laughs> yeah, forward to it. Are there some good places available, seriously? In- no, no. You have to know people. And some people have the sourdough and they have the special sourdough and then they make the bread. Or then you smuggle it in from Finland. Like, <laughs> you know, a- you know we, have a, we have a team in, uh, in Finland. Oh, you do? Yeah. And so Hendrik, who's been in the database world for a while, very, very thoughtful individual. He keeps telling me to try to build a bigger team there because you actually have a a very good resource pool. It's very true. It's very true. And you just must make sure they all eat rye bread because that makes them strong and their minds clear. (laughs) (laughs) This has been awesome. We will be back in touch and make sure that you and I go and hang out in San Francisco. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Inspired Execution Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please like and subscribe. We have many more phenomenal guests and inspiring stories to come. So be sure to join us next time.